welcome to the Thankful Homemaker podcast, a podcast to be an encouragement and blessing to each other in the role God has called us to as women. I'm so thankful you stopped by, so grab yourself a coffee or tea and sit with me a bit as we talk about how God's Word impacts every area of our lives as Christian women. Hello, friend. I'm Marcy Farrell from ThankfulHomemaker.com, and I'm so glad to be with you today as we are continuing on in our study of the Sermon on the Mount. We're currently working through the Beatitudes or the Blessings right now in Matthew chapter 5, and these Beatitudes are the characteristics of those that belong to the kingdom of heaven. So if you're here for the first time, you're not behind. Each episode can stand alone, but I'd love you to go back and listen to past episodes when you get the time or if you get the time. I'm moving through them slowly, so you have time to listen to past episodes and I have time to prepare new episodes. And this one is only the fifth in the series. So today we're working through the fourth Beatitude. This is our podcast episode 90, and we are on verse Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, which reads, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So the history of our world has been plagued with drought and famine. The story of Joseph's brothers coming to him in the midst of the famine in Egypt comes to my mind. Or even today, there are so many places around the world where people are still dying because of malnourishment. We remember the story of the four lepers in 2 Kings 7, who in the midst of a famine determined to enter the enemy's camp to get food. Not something most of us would probably think about doing, but they state there in 2 Kings 7, 4, if we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So the lepers, they're faced with death in the midst of this famine if they enter the city or if they sit where they are. But desperate hunger pushes them to enter the enemy camp and choose possible death. Wandering in the desert heat for any amount of time without a source of water would have you doing nothing else but thinking about water. We love to hike as a family, and we've taken some hikes where I thought I brought plenty of water, only to realize the heat and the distance should have had me packing some extra ounces, either in my camelback or by carrying an extra water bottle or two. It's interesting when we, when having ample food and water around us, we don't necessarily have this dire hungering or thirsting because we know we just need to open a cupboard or the fridge or stop at a drive through window to find our next meal or drink. But when we find ourselves lacking the basic necessities of survival, we can find ourselves doing nothing else but thinking of them. On those hikes where I didn't bring enough water on my back, all I could think of towards the end of that hike was how thirsty I was and how desperately I couldn't wait to get a drink of water. There's a hunger and a thirst that should be far more concerning to us that we are going to dig in together today. And it's not talking about physical hunger, but spiritual hunger. It's a hunger that will not be satisfied by food or water, but only by God. Matthew 5, 6 here is addressing a spiritual hunger and thirst for righteousness that can only be satisfied by God. Augustine said, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. So the good news here, though, is Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 6, that our hunger and thirst 
can be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. James Montgomery Boyce describing this fourth beatitude, he, he described it as God's answer to man's spiritual longing. So this beatitude follows the progression that we've talked about in the past episodes that the Beatitudes do. They, they build upon one another. We must be poor in spirit. We must mourn over our sin and we must be meek. We see the utter spiritual bankruptcy and our sin before us. We can too easily get caught up in our view of self at times. We can get caught up in those moments of self-pity or self-centeredness or self-righteousness or self-reliance. And we know, we all know this, there is no satisfaction in self. We hate it. And the only solution we know as those in Christ is we cry out to the Lord like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who would deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Martin Lloyd-Jones stated on this verse, this beatitude again follows logically from the previous ones. It is a statement to which all the others lead. It is the logical conclusion to which they come, and it is something for which we should all be profoundly thankful and grateful to God. He says, I don't know of a better test that anyone can apply to himself or herself in this whole matter of the Christian confession than a verse like this. This is important here. Listen, if this verse is to you one of the most blessed statements of the whole of Scripture, you can be quite certain you are a Christian. If it is not, then you had better examine the foundations again. End quote there. Friend, this verse points us towards the need of God's most precious gift and the great need in our lives of Jesus. So we're turning away from our examination of self as we did in the previous verses in Matthew 5 through 3 through 5, and we're turning to God. Many commentaries stated that this is one of the key beatitudes because, in a sense, it is the key to all the others. If we're not hungering and thirsting after God's righteousness, we're not going to see our sinfulness, and we will never know all the fullness of the blessings He's promised us in His Word. So, to hunger in the Greek, means to feel the pains of lack of food. Most of the passages in the New Testament use this term to speak of literal hunger. And to thirst can describe a literal or a figurative, as we have in this verse, of one who is desperately desiring a drink. They're both here, hunger and thirst. Both of those terms are in the present tense. So it is describing a continual habit of our lives, not just a one-time action, we aren't satisfied for the rest of our lives with one meal or one drink, right? So a one-time moment here of hungering and thirsting for righteousness is not going to satisfy us either. Jesus chose this metaphor for this specific reason. We all understand these cravings. We know what it is. Hungering and thirsting for literal food and drink is a day-to-day -day occurrence, and so should be hungering and thirsting after God's righteousness be a day-to-day moment-to-moment, just moment-to-moment -moment occurrence. J.N. Darby said on this verse, and I love this quote here, he said, to be hungry is not enough. I must be really starving to know what is in his heart towards me. When the prodigal son <clears throat> was hungry, he went to feed upon husks. But when he was starving, he turned to his father. End quote there. I love that quote. 
In Matthew 5, 6, our Lord tells us those who do hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed. And remember, our term for blessed meant to be fully satisfied, independent of our circumstances. He also tells us we shall be satisfied. And again, it's not regarding our physical appetite, but a deep hunger of our soul that can only be satisfied by God's righteousness. At the moment of salvation, when we came to a saving knowledge of our Lord, we were justified. Remember, we kind of defined it um, in my podcast on sanctification, but I talked about it in one of the past episodes as just as if we've justified, meaning just as if we'd always obeyed, or even better yet, just, just as if we'd never sinned. We were granted at that moment with Christ's righteousness. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, but he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. And in this verse here, Jesus is addressing our progressive sanctification. It is our growth in righteousness, our growth in holiness, and to Christ's likeness. We hunger and thirst for it. We long for it with every part of our being. Those moments for me when I come before the Lord in prayer and cry out to him as I see how far short I fall, I'm confessing my grumbling and my complaining. I'm coming before him sharing how I don't love others as I should. I don't think the best of others. I waste time. I fail to do what I need to do. I neglect time with him for lesser pursuits. You get the idea. My list can go on. And I'm sure you have your own list of areas that you struggle in here and fall short. When I'm in prayer and seeking him, it's when the spirit reminds me, reminds really my heart, how I long to be done with my sin how I long to be like Christ, how I pray. And my hope is that every one of my actions and responses would be like Jesus, that I would love my husband well, that I would point others to him, that I would please God in all things, from how I love others to how I manage my time to how I spend my time with him and his word and with fellowship with him. As believers, we are going to continually hunger and thirst for God's righteousness, We are all works in progress. It's over the course of our lifetime, this process of sanctification takes place until we're with him in glory. We're working through 1 Peter in Sunday school, and my husband is the teacher, so I feel a little bit of pressure to come well prepared to class. But so much of 1 Peter reminds us that as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against our soul. It reminds us to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable so they'll see our good deeds and glorify our God on the day of visitation. It reminds us to submit to the governing authorities, our employers, as to our husbands as wives, and not just to the good and the just, but to the unjust in all those scenarios there. We're called to be holy as he is holy and to have unity and brotherly love towards one another, to be tenderhearted towards each other, to have a humble or a meek mind. We're told to not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, to bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. This is just a glimpse of our calling as I've been randomly sharing bits from 1 Peter, but it states in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. In verse 24, to die to sin and live to righteousness means we are devoting ourselves to living in a holy manner. Righteousness in the Greek means whatever is right or just and conforms to the revealed will of God. Righteousness is doing what God says and not what we think. Too many times we react to situations instead of praying and seeking God's word on how we should respond to them in a way that he has clearly laid out for us in his word. Kay Arthur, in her in her book, it's called Lord, Only You Can Change Me, and it's on, um, I think it's on the whole Sermon on the Mount, had some helps here on righteousness. I'm going to do a bit of quoting and paraphrasing here from her study. She stated that righteousness is used to refer to an individual's religious duties. We see this in Matthew 6, where Jesus tells us to beware of practicing our righteous acts, such as giving, praying, and fasting, in order to be seen by others. Righteousness is an attribute of God. It's the very essence of his being. So when we hunger and thirst after righteousness, it's to have a deep inner longing to please God. It's a longing that God himself plants within our hearts to cause us to seek after him. To hunger and thirst after righteousness, it's to desire with all our being to live and walk the way God says to live and walk. It's to crave God. It's to crave holiness. And she ends this section by asking us, do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? What are you hungering and thirsting for? It is a deep soul searching. So ask yourself, what means more to you than anything else? What drives your life? What stands out, whatever stands out, I should say, besides God is idolatry. And those things have become your God. My end quoting there and paraphrasing a bit. Those are great questions, though. I love that last one that what means more to you than anything else? What drives your life? And where she says, whatever stands out beside God is idolatry, and those have become your God. So remember the story of the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 27. He wanted to know what he had to do to inherit eternal life. He didn't want to give up his stuff. He hungered and thirsted, not for God, but for more things. We can't find ourselves we can find ourselves sometimes desiring eternal life, but not desiring the holy life that goes along with it. And what we desire shows where our heart is. Thomas Watson has a great quote here. He said, desire is the best discovery of a Christian. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do we value Jesus above all? Do we desire to be like him above all things, to know him, to love him? I'm here with you, friend. These are hard messages to put together. So many prayerful tears are shed as I'm working through them as I see my own lack of love and devotion and the idols in my life that need torn down. We can get caught up in our own self-righteousness, what we think God requires of man instead of true righteousness of God, which goes way beyond our self-righteousness. Jesus said in Matthew 5.20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And to do this means a changed heart. It's taking it above and beyond, legalistically outward, outwardly obeying the law without showing compassion and mercy towards others. Jesus is describing here 
that we recognize our utter spiritual bankruptcy before the Lord and thank him for the gift of his great mercy shown to us through Jesus. And we now obey from a changed heart that loves him and loves others. The ESV Bible states it in this way, kingdom righteousness works itself from the inside out because it first produces changed hearts and new motivations so that the actual conduct of Jesus's followers does in fact exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. So the righteousness of the Pharisees was external and the righteousness of those truly in the kingdom of God is internal. The Pharisees were depending on their own righteousness. Those truly in the kingdom of God are depending on God's righteousness. The Apostle Paul summed it up in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, referring to their righteousness there in that verse, They did not submit to God's righteousness. So that verse, that's clearly looking at the difference of those who have faith and those who do not. Those who do not have faith are looking to their own righteousness to be right with God. Those who are saved are looking to God's righteousness. It's the provision he has made for our sins to be forgiven and for God's justice to be fully satisfied in Christ. This being right with God then produces within us a hunger and thirst to continually be more like Christ, to continue to desire to be righteous in everything we do. Being in Christ does not mean we are ever going to reach any state of perfection while on this earth, but it does mean that we desire it, we strive for it, and we do this because we know we are not left alone in it. It is God who works in and through us to produce this righteousness. As his children, we desire to be like our Father. We want the prayer of Robert Murray McShane to be ours. He said, Oh God, make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. That needs to be on our wall somewhere or the prayer that we start each day with. Kay Arthur said, Do you want to be righteous? Then receive what God has for you. Be obedient to the revealed will of God, not just with an external obedience from the heart. God will give you more and more. But if you neglect his word, ignore it, or refuse it, you'll have a meager harvest. Ladies, you hear this from me so many times, but we need to be in our Bibles. We need to be students of the word. We need to know what God's word says. If you are struggling to get in the word, check out, I just, I have a video up on my YouTube channel called Prioritizing God's Word When Life is Busy. I'll link to it. I share some simple ways to get in the word daily. So if you're not there I'm going to encourage you to do it. Take a watch of the video. Maybe it'll be a little encouragement and a boost to get you motivated. So we need to get practical. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness should be the general direction of our lives. I feel the need to state it again. We're not talking about perfection, but direction. Do I find my heart focused on the things above and not on the things on the earth? So I'm the practical blogger here, right? So let's get practical of what this might look like. In her book that I referenced earlier by Kay Arthur, her study on the Sermon on the Mount called Lord, Only You Can Change Me, she listed seven practical ways to increase our hunger and thirst for righteousness. I kind of went through them and summarized them in my own thoughts, but I really liked them. They were a great starting place. And she even starts off that section just saying, it begins with us praying with the psalmist in Psalm 139, 23 to 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I think about that and along with Robert Marie McShane's quote earlier are two great prayers to start your day with. The first one she talks about is beware of idols. So what stands between us and God? What's taking first place in our hearts over him? It could even be seemingly good things. So we need to ask him to search our hearts here. The second is do not love the world or the things in the world. And I'm thinking there are verse, um, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. So what do we find ourselves getting caught up in? The world and the things of it are appealing to our flesh. We need to pray that we would turn our eyes from looking at vanity and look at the things that produce reverence for the Lord. Think here Psalm 119, verses 37 through 38. Number three, count all as loss for the sake of Christ. We need to be like the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. Great one to read through there. He counted all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, his Lord. And in this passage here in Philippians 3, 7 through 10, K. Arthur recommended to mark every occurrence of the pronoun I and to turn it into your own personal prayer to the Lord. Number four, pursue the one thing, capital O, the main thing, Jesus, right? We can get busy and distracted as Martha did in Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 42. And remember, just one thing is needed. Remind ourselves to pursue the one thing means to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and to become conformed to his death. And I'm quoting there from Philippians 3.10. So obviously those Philippians verses, chapter 3, verse 7 through 10 are ones I'm pointing you towards. Number five, watch the company you keep. Do you have friends who draw you away from Christ? Just be aware of the influence there and the time spent with them. It doesn't mean you stop being friends with them or being spending time with them, but maybe you need to draw back a bit, all right? I'm not talking about putting yourself in a little Christian bubble and you're never out in the world, And but you know. So basically here, God's Spirit's going to convict you on that one. I think of 1 Corinthians 15, 33 there, right? Bad company corrupts good morals. It's not just a verse to tell our children. It's for us too. Number six, keep coming to him. He is where we're going to find our true satisfaction. We need to turn off the noise of the world and just sit with our Lord. In Psalm 81.10, it tells us, here he tells us, I should say, I, the Lord, am your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. So sit with him, be with him, bask in his goodness, friend. Number seven, this is my one I'm constantly reminding myself of. Give thanks in and through all things. So receive all he has for you with open hands and an open heart, giving thanks for all things. First Thessalonians 5.18 comes to my mind here. <clears throat> so I will list those in the show notes. It's not this checklist to go through, but it's a place to start. So really just there, if you're not even sure where to begin increasing in your hunger and thirst for righteousness, the areas that you know you're struggling in are going to surface that you sit with that list in your prayer time. The Lord will reveal them to you. He doesn't want anything to hinder you from coming to him. Martin Luther expressed this beatitude in this way. He said, what is required is a hunger and thirst for righteousness that can never be curbed or stopped or sated, one that looks for nothing and cares for nothing except the accomplishment and maintenance of the right, despising everything that hinders this end, end quote there. 
Satisfaction is promised to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus doesn't say satisfaction is promised to those who get this perfected in their lives. Again, we're a work in progress. It's a moment by moment, day by day, week by week, walk with the Lord, learning more about who he is and what he desires of us. He loves us just where we are, but loves us enough to not leave us there, but to continue to change us more and more into his likeness. So those who hunger and thirst, they and they alone shall be satisfied. And it's a word that was used to describe the feeding of animals to the point of contentment. They could eat until they were completely satisfied. This term was used in Matthew 14, 20. They all ate, and that was there referring to the multitudes that Jesus fed there with the five loaves and two fish, and they were all satisfied, and they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. Paul describes in Philippians 4.12 on the secret of contentment or spiritual nourishment here in Philippians 4.12. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. So those who hunger and thirst will be satisfied because they will find righteousness not in themselves, but in Jesus So my friend here, as we pursue the things of God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we will see the answer to our sin that separates us from God is only to be resolved fully and completely in the cross of Christ. God is the only one and him alone who can satisfy the deepest needs of our hearts. Again, Augustine's quote is so prevalent here. (laughs) You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. We can tend to look to the things of this world for satisfaction, our marriages, our children, our status, our appearance, our food, our careers, but God made us for himself and he alone is the one who can bring satisfaction and fulfillment. All those things are fading and none of them will ever, will ever bring satisfaction. I cannot look to them for fulfillment. Any of them can be taken away in a moment's notice. A devoted follower of Socrates asked him the best way to acquire knowledge, and Socrates responded by leading him to a river and plunging him beneath the surface. The man struggled to free himself, but Socrates kept his head submerged. And then finally, after much effort, the man was able to break loose and emerge from the water. And Socrates then asked him, when you thought you were drowning, what one thing did you want most of all? Still gasping for breath, the man exclaimed, I wanted air. And the philosopher wisely commented, when you want knowledge as much as you wanted air, then you will get it. So I'm not sure that I would really like to be part of that example, but (laughs) the same is true with our desire for righteousness. When we trust Christ, God declares us righteous in his sight. But that doesn't mean we are perfect. We need to grow daily in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this can happen only If we have an intense desire to grow, it should be our highest aspiration to be like Christ every day. So are we filled? Do we desire to be satisfied in him and him alone? God will supply all our needs out of the riches of his glory. Matthew 7, 7 reminds us, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. So come before the Lord in humility and greater awareness of your need. Seek the Lord in prayer and don't stop knocking or persevering. The Lord will provide all we need and will always provide what is best for us according to his gracious and loving and perfect will. And remember that there because we sometimes as women can get caught up comparing what is best for me is not best for someone else. God is providing what is best for me and what I need, not what my friend needs or 
whoever I'm looking at there, but what I need. So hold to that. So I'm going to let um, James Montgomery Boyce from his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount close this out today. Excellent resource. So good. But hang with me to the end for another resource recommendation too, in addition to this one. So he, the conclusion of the study is that where there is a desire for righteousness, there will be filling and the filling will be Christ himself. So James Montgomery Boyce goes on, he says, in this first sermon given early in his three-year ministry, Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. But he did not elaborate on the filling. Later, when his teachings began to make their impact on the small circle of listeners, he did. He said to the woman of Samaria, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked, asked him and he would have given you living water. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks this water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So to the disciples who had witnessed the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves in Galilee, he added, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. So have you drunk deeply at that spring and fed on that bread? Or are you still feeding on things that do not satisfy? When the prodigal son left home, he expected to find complete satisfaction. He wanted to live, and life to him meant money, clothes, food, companionship, and happy times. Instead of these things, he found poverty, rags, hunger, loneliness, and misery. When he was hungry, he turned to feeding swine. It was only when he was finally starving that he turned back to his father. In his father's company, he found all he had thought to find in the world. His father clothed him, fed him, welcomed him, and rejoiced in his return. How sad if you should turn from the one, capital O there, who guarantees satisfaction in life to things that will never, never satisfy for long. How blessed for you to return to the Father through the way in which he has told you to come through the Lord Jesus Christ. Truly, my friends, Jesus is enough always. Again, I'm so grateful for your time today. I'm grateful for you, my friend, for being here with me. I love working through this rich passage of scripture with you, and I've enjoyed your comments on social media and your personal notes that you've sent. They are a blessing and encouragement to me. Please, if you're enjoying the podcast, take a moment and leave a rating and review wherever you listen in. It is such a help in others finding the podcast, and I always, I'm so grateful for each and every one of you who has done that, and I read every one of them, and I'm so thankful for you. And again, head over to thankfulhomemaker.com for the complete show notes, and I'll share that link below here too. And I have one resource to recommend in addition to the one that I talked about, James Montgomery Boyce's book, and then also all the ones that I linked to the, the main post over at the blog on this. But again, I'm just going to throw it out to you. It is my pastor's sermon on this passage. I'll link to this too in the main show notes. It's called Feast for the Famished. So good. So if you get time and you just have that extra time in between episodes here, pop it on your headphones, take a listen. So my friends, this is, um, I believe this one is coming out Thanksgiving week. So for my American friends celebrating Thanksgiving here soon, have a very happy Thanksgiving. And I pray you have a very blessed week, my dear friend. Mm-hmm.